abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. In today's episode, we will present not one nor two, but the three remaining elements of the spelt model, Israel's model for water sustainability. Structure, pricing, education, legislation and technology are the components of the entire model and thus far we have presented education and technology on their own. However, the aspects of structure, pricing and legislation are inseparable. They go hand in hand, constantly challenging, as well as supporting each other, continuously spiraling upwards. Spoiler alert! If you think that there's something out of the ordinary to this part of the model, there's no secret here. Actually, we will be talking about something that some might consider mundane, and if by the end of this episode you will get the feeling that it is quite banal, then I guess we did our job just right. In 1959, the first Israeli water law created a legal framework based on the ethos that water is owned by the public. There's no private ownership of water in Israel, and the government is the trustee that operates the entire water sector for the people. Three major amendments to this law were made throughout the years, but the essence remained. The Israeli water law creates an adaptive regulatory structure which promotes the creation of national infrastructure that in turn supports long-term planning for seeing growth, all enabled by a seemingly insignificant notion that water costs money. It is a virtuous circle that ensures that a country at the edge of the desert, in a semi-arid area, during turbulent times of global climate changes, will go on thriving. Our three guests today hold between them decades' worth of knowledge and experience. They are veterans of the Israeli water sector who took part, and still are taking part, in shaping the water sector in Israel. But first, here is Oded Distel, head of Israel Newtech, who lays down for us the very basics. Oded, this episode is, I think, the most intricate one when we come to speak about the Israeli model. It's really hard to decipher what leads what. In this episode, we're talking about three important pillars of this model, but you cannot pick and choose. Yes. They work in harmony. And they are the secret behind. This is the very bureaucratic, administrative, governmental... Something that, uh, you know, we have to make sure that our listeners... Are Won't fall good. asleep. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I dare them because it is important. So please, do not fall asleep. And actually, you know, it's really interesting how it does work together. I've been working with you now for, for several months, and mm-hmm. this, this part of the model is, is the most intricate and the most intriguing at yes. the same time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Walk us through, please. So... In Israel, the legal structure, the pricing, and the operational structure of the water systems, it's quite unique. But at that point, 
very important to say. It's not a silver bullet kind of solution to the water challenge. This system is definitely not cut and paste to other places, but the philosophy of it can be taken and adapted to other places and needs and characteristics and size. But the core element, the philosophy of it, is definitely something that uh, we gladly share with whoever wishes to take it. No one really owns the water in Israel, but everybody owns the water in Israel. Absolutely. You, you kind of uh, rent the option to use it, the service of it, mm-hmm. for a short period of time, mm-hmm. but you don't own the water. Not rainwater, not groundwater, surface water, wastewater, uh, all type of water, whatever, belongs to the people. And this unique definition allows us to build a holistic structure where water is being managed on a national scale. In most other places around the world, water was managed on a local scale. So the farm and the village took care of their own water needs, the small city and maybe the, the factory. Each one managed its own water issues separately. And everything was fine until we became too big And we are now facing, on a global scale, water shortage. You have to manage water in a smarter way, in a holistic way. And you have to create the synergies between the different sectors, between different regions. And this is something that uh, was done in Israel from day one. But, you know, in Israel, it's very easy. We are a small country. Yep. Physically, you need to take care of things. Infrastructure must be bigger. Yeah, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, you can run uh, China or, uh, or United States and probably not even Italy with the same philosophy of uh, one water entity that takes care of all water issues on a national uh, scale. But on the other side, you have phenomena that do not make any sense. Such as? So I'm picking on Brazil and uh, forgive me, the, our Brazilian listeners. But you have areas in, in Brazil where you do not have water and sometimes some cities cannot supply 24-7 on a regular base. We're talking about the country that has 14% of the entire potable water of the world. Yes, but because Brazil is so big, you would have areas with abundance of water. And at the same time, you would have areas where they are considering uh, maybe desalination as, a, as an option. In Brazil? In Brazil. So the situation is complicated, it is challenging, and uh, obviously size plays an important uh, factor in the decision-making process. But the philosophy of looking at water from a national point of view is something that I think we're going to see more and more Because different countries around the world understand that it is a national issue. We are reaching now the most conversed topic, I think, in the past yes. five, six years. When it comes to water sector people, this is now the holy grail. Yep. Water costs money. And we are talking about pricing. In Israel, everybody, everybody, everybody pays money. For water. It's a crucial point that uh, many politicians and leaders around the world shy away from. 
and they are afraid to touch it because they think they are going to pay heavy political price for dealing with it. I, on the contrary, think that it's a question of trust. And once the public would accept the fact that uh, the politicians are honest with their intention of really delivering water, good quality water to the public, the public would accept the fact that it costs money and would be willing to pay for it. Engineer Shimon Tal served as the water commissioner between the years 2000 and 2006. Prior to that, he served as the chief engineer of Mekorot, Israel's government-owned water corporation, supplying 90% of the nation's water all throughout the country. Mekorot's pride, and hence Israel's pride as well, is the national carrier the company built during the 1950s to distribute water from natural water sources in the north of the country to its south, relying both on surface water sources as well as underground water sources. The Israeli water ethos began even before the creation of the State of Israel, says Shimon Tal. Our leaders understood that we don't have enough water resources for all the needs of this country. And of course, we need the water for the benefit of the people and also for the development of the country. After Israel was established, our leaders determined exactly how water sector will be managed efficiently and according to priorities. So the scarcity of water and natural water resources in Israel is the basic fact of how we manage the water sector in Israel. Engineer Gior Shacham heads the Israeli Water Authority. Now, if you have this strange feeling that I might have mixed terms and that I don't know my commissions from my authorities, worry not. Change is lurking in the wings, and we will get to it in due time. But for the time being, let us continue as if nothing will happen. Gior Shacham, the CEO and chairman of the Water Authority, is in charge of supplying water to the people in Israel, areas in the Palestinian Authority, as well as Gaza Strip, and water to Jordan, as the peace treaty between the countries stipulates. Not an easy task when you consider the number of people who need water. When Israel was created 70 years ago, there was only 600,000 people in all Israel. Now we are about 10 million. In the whole area, in the whole Middle East, in the watershed of the Dead Sea, it's about 45,000 square kilometers. 70, 80 years ago, there was no more than one million people. In Syria, in Jordan, in Israel, in the West Bank, in Lebanon, and so on. And the water was used mainly for agriculture uses. Now, in this area of the watershed of the Dead Sea, lives minimum 20 million people. So from one million in 1948 to 20 million in 2020. In Israel, the needs became from less than one million cubic meter for domestic use to about one billion. Shimon Tal. To be able to live here only on, based on natural water resources, we will not be able to survive here. Because if you calculate how much water we have, natural water for per capita, it's about 200, maybe 150 cubic meter per capita, and it's going down each year because we have additional 1.8 people to supply water each year. If you divide the amount of natural water resources 
to the number of people that we have. We have a, a renewable water resources of no more than 150 cubic meters per capita per year. And this number is going down. Just remember that you need about 90 cubic meters per year for domestic use. So for every person, we have additional 60 cubic meters for other purposes. And this number is going down. So what will be after 20 or 30 years? We will not be able even to supply water for drinking purposes. So the number of consumers is on the rise. Natural resources are dwindling and volatile. Are there any certainties? You can't talk about average in water. You are talking about the minimum amount of water because if you want a 100% reliability to supply water for domestic use, you have to prepare yourself for the minimum amount of natural water sources and then to bring more water from artificial sources. The minimum now is not stable because the global warming and the climate changes all over the world, the minimum that was measured here in Israel from the whole natural sources, from the Sea of Galilee, from the coast aquifer, and from the mountain aquifer, is about 700 million cubic a year. The average is about 1.1 billion cubic meter a year. This is the average. Now we use for only for domestic uses and industrial uses about 1 billion cubic meter a year. There is some years, severe drought and so on, there is no enough natural world for domestic uses. So a huge deficit then. Yeah. Now we are this year, thank God, we have a good rainy season. Mm-hmm. But the past five years, we were in a very severe drought. Yes. And we explored from the natural bank almost everything. All those aquifers, the Sea of Galilee, the mountain aquifer is almost in the red line. In the western Galilee, it's under the red line, was before this uh, winter. And uh, in the coast aquifer is uh, the same situation. Five or six years ago, we had enough stock in those uh, natural uh, aquifers. And of course, we have almost 600 million cubic meters from desalination plants. But it's not enough. Shimon Tal. When we tried to manage our water sector only on the base of the natural water resources, of course, we reached very severe crises in, uh, in the water supply. The first one was in 1986, when we had to reduce water allocation for agriculture by 15%. Then, three years after, in 1989, was the second one, much severe. And after additional seven years, we reached another crisis. And then we decided to, to change the policy. A strong Israeli ethos is land cultivation. And agriculture in the early days was a driving force and a source of national pride. It was quickly translated into political power. At the beginning of this country, most of the water went for agriculture uses. We, you, can't, you can't pay in agriculture the whole prices of this expensive uh, national water carrier and so on. And the politicians, most of them came from the left side of the political map. Along the years, the agriculture and the political situation in Israel changed, and the population grew 
demand for water for domestic uses uh, grew also, and the politicians in the parliament didn't allow to raise the water prices, and it caused the generation of the water infrastructure. But pricing has more than just the power to ensure the good upkeep of infrastructure. It can also promote behavioral change. I'm sure we all know this basic economic fact, people's behavior will be affected by pricing. And if you need another example to something you already know, I'm happy to present what's been going on in Israel during the past quarter of a century or so. Ronen Wolfman is today the CEO of Hutchison Water Israel. Their desalination plant in Sorek is the biggest one in Israel and one of the largest in the world. Prior to that, he was the CEO of Mekorot. An economist by training, he began his career as the person in charge of water budgets at the Israeli Budget Office in the Ministry of Finance during the 1990s. In 1991-1992, it was the middle of uh, the first very severe drought in Israel. Who do you go after first? Household users or agriculture? Who do you cut the water to first? Of course, the agriculture. You know, when you're learning uh, economics, you have... Uh, The curve of how much elastic is your demand if your demand curve is very steep like household you cannot really affect dramatically the quantity that you are using by by the household user but the agriculture is very flexible since they can grow every year a new crop for example cotton was very popular in Israel at that time and the incentive was to stop the new crops of cotton in order to reduce the The use of cotton in Israel that, uh, of course, use a lot of water per square meter. My perspective, part of it, was the economist part, because that was my role in the Ministry of, uh, of Finance. And at that time, the pricing was, of water was very, very low. How much was it per cubic meter? It was something around 10 U.S. cents per cubic meter. It's quite low compared to the Israeli economy. pricing or the real cost of water. What was the real price of water at that time? Uh, more than triple or four times that price. So, so that price incentivized the agriculture to use much more water than it was economic actually to produce to the, to the Israeli state. That's why there was a lot of argument why to produce cotton in order to export cotton. So, so actually you are subsidizing the cotton. That you are producing to the world if you are raising the price from 10 cents to 20 cents then the agriculture is thinking what will be the best benefit for the same cubic meter of water if I need to pay it for it 20 cents so I need to change the crops that I'm using I cannot anymore use it for cotton I can use it only for very high grade and high economics value for the crops, so I need to change it to maybe a vegetable that I'm growing in a greenhouse. So that's part of the shifting that the Israeli market did by raising prices to the agriculture use. At a certain point during our conversation, he said, Actually, I came from a kibbutz in the far south of Israel. It's called Mishmar Negev. And the first time that I faced the water was when I was a child and uh, 15 years old, and I walked in the fields in order to irrigate cotton. So I know part of the user side as well. So that gives me a good perspective for that. 
you know, joking aside, it's a great story. But now I'm going back to the point where you said, you know, when I worked for the, the Ministry of Finance, we said, no more water for cotton. Didn't you get into trouble with your family and, and kibbutz members? I was, every time, you know, when, when I visit my parents in, in the kibbutz, arguing with the kibbutz members or the, my parents as well regarding what I'm doing to the agriculture. And the agriculture, all the time blame uh, the Ministry of Finance. There we are changing their uh, way of living. And they, they live from growing crops. So my answer at that time was that you need to change. You need to do things differently. You need to find the right crops that can deal with higher price of water and receive higher return on, on that. What and was the reaction? They were quite skeptic at that time, but I believe that today they understand that. So they shifted from cotton to Mishmar Negev. For cotton, for, for example, for potatoes. Potatoes has a much better return on every cubic meter that you are using, and that was a much higher benefit that you can raise from that. And that's what happened in many other kibbutz in, in, in Israel. After the break, we will hear from our guests about the major amendments done to the original water law and how it enables Israel to prepare itself to the year 2050. Wish to learn more about Israeli technologies and the Israeli water sector? The people of Israel New Tech will be glad to answer your questions. Log on to IsraelNewTech.com and don't forget to follow Waterline on Facebook to get updates and give us your feedback. You can also follow me on Twitter at IdanC79. And now, back to the episode. major change in the water law was at the middle of the last decade of this century that uh, the water authority was separated from the Ministry of Agriculture, Ministry of Infrastructure and so on and became an independent uh, authority with a water council with a representative from five or six uh, ministries. Their obligation is to give the right price for water which depends on how much money you need to develop and to maintain the water sector. Engineers have this understated, matter-of-fact tone to their voice, a general no-drama demeanor to them. What Gyor Shacham just said did not happen overnight and is actually the culmination of a process that spanned more than a decade. First, let us create a baseline. Ronen Wolfman. Let's go back to what happened in '91 and what was the structure then. According to the structure at that time and the legislation that was in place in 1991, in order to update the water price, you need the water commissioner and the minister of finance to appeal to the committee in the parliament in order to approve even a small indexation update according to the new CPI that was published. In the committee, you find most of the member of the parliament was the agriculture side. So in order to convince them that you need to raise price, they, of course, they were affected by 
their voters. So there was all the time very problematic process to change the procedure, to change the prices. So we tried to change the legislation. And I think it was in 92, we changed the legislation that was the linkage price was automatic. So we don't need to go anytime back to the committee in the parliament in order to update price according to the CPI or other changes on the electricity price. Second step later on was to change every time that the government need to cut part of the subsidy. And that was part of the new process that the pricing of water need to reflect actually the real cost of water. We need to return and to cover not only the operation cost, but also the capital expenditure that has a lot of cost on that side. So that was one of the revolutions regarding the pricing in order to really reflecting the total real cost of water in Israel. When you are paying for uh, telecommunication services, you are covering the OPEX and the CAPEX as well. The very uh, traditional way of looking at the water was budgeting the capital expenditure in one hand and the operation expenditure in the second hand. Operation expenditure, for example, Mekorot was in charge of operation expenditure. They need to cover the electricity price. They need to cover the main force that operate everything, maybe the maintenance. That is the OPEX. But when you need to invest in a new pipeline, a new desalination plant, a new a treatment plant, there was a different budget. The budget was coming from a different sources that cover these CAPEX. But, but, it when, makes, but it makes sense. I mean, you live in a country. This is the country's obligation. So, and you pay taxes. In Israel, you pay taxes handsomely. It's fine. There is money available to build such a thing. Why should I pay for it in my water bill? At that time, any pipeline, any valve, anything that was quite small and up to a huge project needed the approval of the Ministry of Finance. That was the unbelievable structure at that time. That is really different in any other business. But this very bureaucratic process was part of the weakness of the, of the structure. And we decided to change the structure, to transfer all the responsibility to that entity for Mekorot, for example, the, the National Water Infrastructure. They will optimize directly by their budget what is the real project that they need to do tomorrow. And that was the change of the structure in the mid-90s at that time. Little by little, small amendments and adjustments to legislation impacted the structure of the water sector. And taking care of the pricing element was not forgotten. Shimon Tal. The big reform that we were doing in the water sector in 2006 by establishing the Water Authority didn't meant only to change the name of the Water Commission Office to Water Authority. It has a very profound issues in it, in this uh, reform. When I was the Water Commission, I couldn't manage the old chain of water because part of the authorities were in the hand of the politicians. So we couldn't manage the water sector efficiently in, in, in a sustainable way. For example, the administration that was dealing with sewage infrastructure was in the hand of the Ministry of Infrastructure. The regulation of the municipalities, the water and sewage department in the municipalities, was done by the Ministry of Interior Affairs. 
and so on. So really there were some absurd in the management of the water sectors. And we decided to end this situation and to gather all the regulatory bodies to work under one roof. How did you manage to take power out of the hands of politicians? <laughs> But this is, this is only the first reason why we established the Water Authority. The second thing was to take all the management authorities from the political level and bring it into the professional level. For example, ministers cannot be part of the decision makers about tariffs of water. And the third thing that was very important also was to bring all the stakeholders of the water, for example, Ministry of Agriculture, Ministry of Environment Protection, Ministry of uh, Finance, to be board of directors to the Water Authority. So all stakeholders now are part of the decision-making. It makes it much more easier to decide and to take all the aspects into consideration. So these three aspects are the main reason why we made this reform. It was very hard. The ministers and other ministries didn't accept this uh, reform, but our friends were the people from the Ministry of Finance. So the notion of smarter, better pricing created a smarter, better structure for the water sector in Israel. So the, the Ministry of Finance in Israel is so strong? Much more than you think. He is very strong and he can dictate a lot of things and push them forward. Most of the time they are doing the right things. For example, like establishing of the Water Authority. Everybody understood that this is the right way, but nobody wants to give up his uh, power. So we decided to go in this direction. And uh, finally, the government approved this reform. I managed to be part of the group that approved it also in the parliament. But afterward, uh, my minister that uh, didn't like this idea uh, asked me to, to leave my position and, um, and, of course, he nominated somebody else. And, but this is okay. After six years, I think it's, it's logical. So, but, so, wait a second. You're saying you paid a personal price for doing the right thing. I was doing the right thing. I, I'm not looking at it as I, as I paid for, the, for doing the right thing because it, it was after six years, and I think that six years is a good time to summarize the period of activity uh, because we, we made a lot of things in the water sector uh, during these six years. So... For me, it, is, it was naturally that the minister wants to work now, from now on, from, with somebody else. And for me, it was okay, and uh, I moved to another uh, activity that uh, I wanted to do. On the Water Authority's website, one can find a lot of information, numbers and statistics gathered throughout the years. But more importantly, one can find an in-depth look into the future. Israel in 2050... through the eyes of the Water Authority, looks like this. A 70% increase in population, which in turn will incur a surge of 67% in demand. There will be a 15% decrease in natural freshwater sources, as well as a fall of more than 25% in saline water resources. However, solutions are already implemented. 
Israel already manufactures water by desalinating seawater and purifying wastewater. Today, 90% of all treated wastewater is being used, and the report indicates an increase in the volume of treated wastewater to more than double the amount today. You can find a link to the Water Authority's website in the description of this episode. 2050 won't come in cheap. In order to be able to supply 2050's demands, we need to get working on it today, says Gior Shacham. Because the water sector in Israel is a closed market, or close to closed market, we are, as the regulators of the water sector, are responsible to control the tariff, and the ways to control the tariff is to control the investment uh, programs, the maintenance uh, costs. Those costs of managing and investments are very closed uh, controlled by our engineers in the Water Authority to see that there is a matching of what they need for development and what is done. Roughly, you can divide the water cost for three sectors. One third for investments, one third for maintenance and operation, and one third for energy. Sounds fine and dandy. Easy peasy. Piece of cake. It is common sense. Pay for what you use and make sure you have enough to invest for future needs. Unfortunately, more often than not, that is not the case, says Shimon Tal. Many politicians don't want to confront the people and to collect the real cost of water because they are afraid from the people. But the result is that poor people are paying much more for the water than in compared to the situation that they have a sustainable water supply system. Let's take, for example, a country in Central America that has four times more rain than in Israel but they don't have water to drink. Why? Because they don't collect the sewage, they don't treat the sewage because they don't have enough money to buy chemicals and to repair the pumps, etc. So sewage is flowing in the rivers, and I went by a helicopter 300 meters in the air, and you can smell the, the sewage 300 meters above because everything is contaminated with sewage. So at the end of the day, people suffer from this situation. This is what happens in most of the places all over the world. It's not a lack of water. It's a problem of mismanagement of the water sector. This is the main problem. The Israeli water law was legislated in 1959. The first major reform was making sure that prices reflect the real cost of water. The second one, part as the result of that move, to ensure that the money will not leave the sector was to create a new governing body to run the water sector and in came the water authority. That was on a national level. There is one part we haven't talked about yet and that is the municipal level. Put plainly, water supply and wastewater collection on the municipal level mirrored for decades the natural structure. Water was managed by a department in each municipality and money that was collected through water bills not always found their way back into the municipal water system and municipal water infrastructure deteriorated over the years. Gio Shacham. At uh, 2009 or 10, there was another very major step 
the water law when the waters sector in the municipalities of Israel was separate from the municipality itself and became a closed market water companies. So effectively what happened a decade before on a national level came into effect on the municipal level. Right. You can see the consequence uh, every year. And you can see the consequence after five years of continuous drought that the water sector in Israel improved dramatically. The water losses in the municipalities uh, declined uh, from 30-40% a year to 5-6% a year. Fifteen years ago, there was municipalities that the, the water losses was, were about 30-40%. Uh, the price was so low, you know, you paid about 30-40 cents per cubic meter. Who care about the water losses? Now, when it's between 2 to $3 a cube, everybody is looking after the, every drop of water because he pays a lot of money for it. So um, those two major changes in the water law changed the water sector in Israel to separate the water authority and develop it as an independent authority. And the second one is to separate the water sector in the municipalities and became closed water companies. And the last step was three months ago when the third change in the water law reduced the amount of water companies from 56 to maximum 30, which will impact the efficiency of managing the water sector in the municipalities very much. Dear listeners, I hope you've survived and did not fall asleep. I also hope you managed to see how this intricate mechanism, the triad of legislation pricing structure, enables constant water supply. It is hard work done on a daily basis, whilst keeping in mind that every little tweak to the system you do today can have a huge impact on a certain tomorrow down the line. Ronen Wolfmann Let me ask you a half a philosophical question, okay? What is tomorrow in water terms? Look, tomorrow, in the water terms, it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky uh, question. Why? Because in water, compared to other utilities, water usually came from the sky or from the underground. If you are talking philosophic, people are praying to God for water. They didn't pray for electricity, but they're praying for water. In order that the water will fall from the sky, irrigate their crops or give them water for drinking. But water today is really different. We don't need to pray for water. We need to be active in order to be sure that the water will flow to our tap. In order to have the water tomorrow, you need to plan ahead and to have the right structure that will ensure that you will have the water every day. Tomorrow, day after tomorrow, and the next year and the following years. And that structure is based on legislation, pricing, and of course, infrastructure that you are investing for long term. Waterline was brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production.